Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Ever reach for the salt at the dinner table and think to yourself, hmm, how will I know the right amount of salt to put on my steak? What if I pour too much, too little? If only I had something to guide me through this process. No, I have absolutely never thought that in my life, but clearly someone did think that and made a smart technology out of it. See, the thing with this is it shows that sometimes, you know, we laugh at these technologies that seem silly to us but for some people they can be really helpful Mm. so like people with high blood pressure who need to monitor their salt intake maybe it's good for them to have a salt shaker that can't give them too much salt maybe i am being too judgmental too quickly you need a smart mayonnaise dispenser okay harsh (laughs) i just won't eat lunch with you when i was in primary school around the turn of the century a computing teacher showed us a video of a theoretical home of the future The house used sensors to predict the inhabitants' needs and then served those needs through a range of technologies. Nowadays, we would probably call this house a smart home and describe its connected devices as part of the Internet of Things. It might feature a smart fridge that allows you to remotely monitor the contents perfect for when you're out on a food shop or recommend you recipes based on what's inside. The house would have cameras throughout, perhaps with facial recognition, which would turn on lights and open doors for known inhabitants and send an alert for strangers. Its floors would probably be cleaned by some kind of robotic vacuum. But the Internet of Things isn't limited to smart homes. Scale it up and you get entire smart cities and a whole industry of companies trying to change our urban infrastructure. So what Pavedent does is we make a floor that when you walk on the floor, it converts your weight into electrical power and also data. So the more you walk on a, on a street, in an office, in the heart of a city, the more energy can be produced. The term smart city is widely used and recognised. And yet, there's some disagreement over what exactly makes a city smart. If you take the core concept of a city that is made more efficient, sustainable, or just more enjoyable based on information gathered, aren't most cities somewhat smart already? And when it comes to gathering that data that enables these improvements, what are the limits? So for instance, if we want to understand how to provide better internet accessibility and connection to people, that data cannot come from only the privileged few. It has got to come from every single source. Otherwise, when we run machine learning, that technology is going to be as biased as the data that we put in, that we fit into the model. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and this is Chips With Everything.
On a recent episode of this podcast, we talked about how science fiction is inspired by technology, and vice versa. Right now, smart cities, smart homes, and the Internet of Things are popular themes, sometimes to the detriment of the characters. And yet, smart cities is a multi-billion dollar industry. So what's the motivation? Why should we want to build these cities and live in them? I have four surnames. So I am Italian-Brazilian, so, and my husband is Japanese-Italian-Brazilian as well, so I have a surname from each side of the family. So that's why I have such a long name. That's brilliant. So what are some of your- My producer Danielle spoke to Larissa Suzuki, a computer scientist who has focused much of her research on the development of smart cities. It's perhaps unsurprising that people debate over the definition of a smart city when there's even disagreement on what makes a regular city. In the UK, city status is granted by the monarch, and there's a strong association with having a cathedral. In Japan, there's a population requirement. So where are the disagreements over what counts as a smart city? A smart city is a city that provides efficient solutions that will provide a particular society, high quality of life, meeting its ambitious agenda for prosperity, for growth, for business to succeed. So in some cultures, um, a smart city could be efficient transportation. And in another city with a different culture, they want to see high tech things. So a city that says, oh, it's a smart city, just because it has like some sensors in a bridge, I don't think that is the point of a smart city. By that definition, how many cities can we really call smart? Would Larissa say we even have any yet? A complete a smart city, I don't believe there's one yet. I think it's because it's a new science. People are still learning. You know, some years ago in the 60s, people came up with this idea of digital city. What if we give internet to everybody? We put information about the city online, more like a yellow page. And they saw like the engagement with society and government started to grow. But the problem is, Government, they started infusing technology without really consulting people what they really wanted, how they wanted that to look like. So a lot of digital cities, they failed because there was not many users engaged with that solution. And it's happening now that this kind of top-down approach being adopted in a lot of places, and that does not work. So we have a lot of like bottom-up approaches, like community-led initiatives. A good example of this is the Oxford Flood Network, which is a project that they give citizens alongside the Oxford Canal. They give them sensors so they can help the community to measure the levels of the of the canal. And if there is a risk of flood, everybody can let each other know. The citizens, they own the device. They feel they're part of the value creation. So it's a very nice community engagement project. So it's starting to take up now, I think, this idea. So we are yet to see a fully smart city. In 2017, Larissa wrote an article called Today's Smart Cities Design, Where is Our Collective Right to the City? In it, she writes that smart cities is a potential dangerous title. So I don't see people, when designing a smart city solution, I don't see them checking what is the value that that solution is bringing to all of society, because we are risking smart cities to become a commodity 
that will only serve a small proportion of the population that most of the time is going to be the privileged few. And the differences between feeling of safety for women, for children, for you know a disabled person, and all those voices, they have to be part of the discussion. With all these criticisms in mind, however, Larissa believes that there can be a positive future for smart cities. The good news is that we have a huge technology advancement that is here for us to use. So we have different ways for us to understand data, for us to mine, for us to interpret data. We have advancements in machine learning and deep learning. A lot of things going on that can really help us to interpret the scale of the data we are collecting, which is great. So I'm very excited about all the possibilities. With cities that depend on mining data from their citizens, however, some people are understandably concerned. What if our cities become so smart that there's nowhere we can go where we won't be giving information away? Is the real definition of a smart city one that turns its citizens into bundles of data? In the case of a smart city, that would be for governments to understand like the questions they want to have answers for and then go and find the data sources that can help them. So for instance, for the private industry doing social media, then that is a whole different kind of uh, perspective because their business model is based on collecting information and selling them. But from a smart city perspective, it's about government focusing on defining which questions must be answered and the data sources that could help us to collect to get that answer. I think there should be a balance and also the element of trust. Because one of the things that also happens is if we adopt the wrong technology and we use the wrong data sources, we're going to create a very problematic city. It's very easy to imagine a dystopian version of the smart city. But, as Larissa says, it doesn't have to be that way. It depends on what everyone involved stands to gain. The citizens, the governments, and the companies responsible for building the tech on which the city runs. After the break, we hear from the founder of one of these companies, an entrepreneur who came up with a way to turn pedestrian footfall into energy and data. All cities are going to be corporate money and government money is going to be funding it, right? But I think what we do, rather than having like a sensor network that are corporates funded that is suddenly combining visa data with cell phone data on top of it, like we are, it's a really, really friendly technology that you only give it data if you say yes. If you don't say yes, it won't get anything on it on you at all. We'll be right back. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. 
So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Science has long tried to classify nature into discrete categories. But the natural world doesn't fit neatly into glass cabinets. The distinction between species is often much more fluid and blurred. So much so that debates among academics often break out when they're trying to decide whether a newly discovered creature is a de novo species or not. So what though? Why does it matter? So this idea of rogue taxonomists, these taxonomic vandals that are going out and just describing species willy-nilly when they don't really exist, well, it might give us a skewed impression of what actually exists in nature. And could a new technology, like DNA barcoding, help? DNA barcoding is a way of identifying plants, animals, but instead of using its physical appearance, we use its DNA instead. Join me, Greer Jackson, for Science Weekly. Just search for Science Weekly in your podcast app or head over to theguardian.com forward slash podcasts. Welcome back to Chips With Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Before the break... We heard from computer scientist Larissa Suzuki, who explained what a smart city is today and what it ought to be in future. But regardless of the confusion over what exactly a smart city means, there are plenty of companies coming up with different technologies that a city like that can use. This morning was a really exciting breakfast. I fed my duck breakfast and then I fed myself muesli. You have a duck? I have a duck. I, yeah, I, I live on a boat on the Thames, a, a sustainable eco boat on the Thames with a duck, which is a fun thing to feed in the morning. So the, the duck lives on the boat, not in the Thames? It lives on the boat. This is Lawrence Kemble Cook. He lives on a solar-panelled houseboat on the Thames with a duck called Billy. He is also the founder of PaveGen, a company that creates smart flooring that generates energy and data from our footsteps. So what Pavedon does is we make a floor that when you walk on the floor, it converts your weight into electrical power and also data. So the more you walk on a, on a street, in an office, in the heart of a city, the more energy can be produced. Can we talk about the technology itself? So you've said that the, these tiles um, generate electricity from footprints and they actually gather data as well. So how does that work? Yeah, so how it works is um, every time you walk on a tile, um, it converts your weight to electricity. We've we've patented a really clever flyable technology that's embedded within the tile. So every time you walk on it, it will produce from between two and five joules of energy, which equates to two to five watts. So the way to think about it is that if you're walking along one of my streets, a paved-in street, it will charge an iPhone. If two people are walking on one of my streets, it will charge two iPhones. It will work alongside solar, it will work alongside wind, and technologies that haven't even been invented yet. And so what we've done recently is we've also built in, uh, built in functionality so that the tiles actually um, produce data that can give you rewards as you walk over the tiles. So how this works is, let's say that you're going to a shopping center. 
you walk over the, into the mall, you get rewarded on your phone, and you can get discounts to local retailers. You can even pay it forward and donate your steps to charity. So we have a digital currency that can reward people for their steps. But the, the data collection is quite an important part of what PaveGen does though, right? It's kind of key on your website. So is, is that the, the main focus of the company or is it something else? It's something that's growing really fast right now. And certainly a huge amount of our attention is put into the data side of it as well. So I think it's more we're executing the second part of our plan, which is, you know, we've proven people love it. We've got hundreds and thousands of people walking on it every single day. And the next part will be you know, really, really working hard to build the data to make it a key part of, of what we're doing internationally. What happens to the data that you collect from these titles? Where does it go? What's it used for? And, and who owns it? We are permission-based access. So if you stand on a PaveGen tile, you will have 10 footsteps. Now, you can choose to exchange those 10 footsteps, for example, um, from micro-scholarship when you go to university. You can choose. Now, if you want to do that, um, we're doing programs at the moment in America where if enough footsteps are gathered, students can actually get um, money when they go to university as a scholarship. Um, and you can choose. You opt in. So if you want to have that sponsorship when you go to university, you opt in. So you have the choice to do it. But um, if these tiles are in public places, you know, in cities around the world, then people are just stepping on them, right? And that's not necessarily an opting in if people don't know that they're there. Yeah, so there's two ways of doing it. So the first way, you can just walk on it, right? And and that's how we get dumb data, which is just there were 10,000 people here today. It was busiest at midday. Like, that's anonymous data. At the moment, people are doing that with video cameras, which is, especially in countries like Germany, they're, they're getting um, shut down. Like, you cannot, people don't want to be filmed in public spaces. That's what's happening today. So PageIn is a solution that is completely anonymous. But the second stage is we've just launched this in a, in a mall in, in East London. They have an app and their app is um, was already existing. But now their app gives you points when you walk over PaveGen tiles, sending people to different stores. So if you have chosen to download the app and opt in, you can get the rewards for your footsteps in that retail environment. I couldn't help but wonder why energy generation wasn't enough. Why did PaveGen have to add data collection to its product? Well, I think it's a hard one. I think if you look, in 2009, when I started, there was 100 clean tech companies purely trying to do generation. If you look at that lineup now, less than 2% remain. I think that energy on its own is a really, really challenging space because ultimately, like, energy is really low cost. Energy is, is, I believe, in this country, is too cheap to reflect the true externality of what's being caused by using that energy. So because it's so cheap, big companies don't, don't really care that much about putting money into a new energy resource. It's all about, I need a two-year payback. It's got to make me money in two years. It's a, it's a finan purely financially driven conception for, the, for, for them. So to really, really grow and looking at the way that corporates and governments think that we need to really use energy still as a really exciting part of what we're offering, but we're not trying to be a pure energy company because there's so much more opportunity out there than just selling energy. So what does this tell us about the future of smart cities? Are we destined for our cities to be run by corporations? So I think that like the corporate aspect of a smart city, I guess all cities are going to be corporate money and government money is going to be funding it, right? But I think what we do, rather than having like a sensor network that a corporate's funded that is suddenly combining visa data with cell phone data on top of it, like it's a really, really friendly technology that you only give it data if you say yes. If you don't say yes, it won't get anything on it on you at all. And 
all it will do is you're a way that you can actually help to power your city. We're empowering people to do that. Now we're a manufacturing company. We make everything United Kingdom. And so like we have to have a business model that will look at the next month's survival. So ultimately, like I'd love to do it for free. Ultimately, I, I would love to purely sell it for energy. Our end goal is always the same as what it was on day one, but we're just making sure that we've got um, the like longevity of business model that can help us like go through it like Tesla did. You know, Tesla's first roadster was nearly $200,000. The range was really limited. It was bought by a few mega wealthy people. And now they're getting nearer and nearer a point where, you know, hopefully I can afford one soon. You know, hopefully every person can buy a Tesla in exactly the same way as I'd go and buy a, a Ford. So I think that, you know, it's just a business model that's evolving. So Lawrence expects paved end streets to be a key part of future smart cities. But what else will characterise smart cities in, say, five years' time? To define a smart city and to say what's going to be the biggest part and component of it, you know, I'd ultimately say it's probably the main operating system that will plug it together. You know, the iOS of a smart city is going to be the most important, powerful thing. And I see lots of other startups in the space plugging into really robust, safe um, iOS platforms, operating systems for cities that hopefully will have someone kind of leading it soon in that space. That's all for this week. I'd like to thank Dr. Larissa Suzuki and Lawrence Campbell-Cook for joining me on the show this week. There will be links to Dr. Suzuki's article on smart cities and PaveGen's website on this week's episode description on The Guardian website. Don't forget, I'm interested to hear your thoughts. If you have any feedback or ideas for future shows, send me an email at chipspodcast at theguardian.com. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.